Alright, here we are back again with the Didactic Mind Podcast, episode 88, The Church Militant. A very warm welcome to all of my longtime listeners over on Podbean. Very warm welcome to all of my longtime readers. Many thanks, as always, for your time and your patronage. Uh, please be sure, if you have not done so already, to like, comment, share, and subscribe. Make sure you are signed up to my mailing list, that way you will never ever miss a new post or a new upload. And always remember that if you are listening to this or viewing this on the distant right, as many of us are, then you need a way to do so without being molested by the internet police. Now the only way to do that really reliably these days is to have a VPN, and as I've been saying for a long time now, the best VPN you can find is, of course, Surfshark. And if you're interested in getting your hands on a VPN for a fantastic deal, head over to the affiliate link in the description box, click on that, and make sure you download Surfshark. It's fully compatible with all platforms. You'll get it for an 80% discount, and you will have, for the money, the widest range of servers available, bar none. And you'll be able to surf you know, anonymously, quietly, without being bothered, without being tracked, without your data leaking into various places, easily and conveniently. You can use unlimited devices. You can even hook up your uh, internet router to use Surfshark at the hardware level so that you don't have to worry uh, about configuring it or reconfiguring it constantly. And that way you can have unlimited devices, you know, running on uh, one connection if you want. Uh, in all honesty, I mean, compared to all the other VPNs out there, it is the best solution. And if you're looking to keep your files and data, you know, on a reasonably well-formed portable storage solution, then I've been using this uh, SanDisk NVMe Extreme one terabyte um, uh, USB Type-C hard drive. It comes with a, a USB 3.1 adapter, which is very, very handy. But honestly, this thing's brilliant. I mean, I'm, I run on a Linux partition. Right, so I basically have Windows and Linux uh, side by side on a 512 gigabyte SSD on my laptop. I love this laptop. I think it's bloody brilliant. I've had it for damn near four years now. And it is phenomenal. It is incredibly powerful. It does everything I need it to do. But the one restriction is that if I want to download a lot of movies, which, by the way, I tend to do by, shall we say, sailing the high seas, while on a VPN connection. Those take up a lot of space. And if I want to play Halo, which I do, and by the way, I do so entirely legally on my Windows partition, you know, via uh, a Steam account. If I want to do that, I have to set aside like 120 gigabytes of space on my hard drive just for Windows, because Windows, being the stupid piece of crap software that it is, takes up like 40 gigabytes out of that space. It's an enormously clunky, stupid, useless, awful, crusty, badly designed, miserable excuse for an operating system. I could go on for an hour just about how much I hate Windows. But it takes up so much space, and it, that only leaves about 50 to 60 gigabytes left over. You know, technically, it's about 80, but a lot of that space just gets eaten up very quickly with just the installation files for all of the various updates and game downloads and other things that have to happen with the Halo, the Master Chief collection on my Windows partition. I got sick and tired of constantly running into the space buffers on my Windows partition, 
So I got this SSD to act as a separate installation folder for Steam. And thankfully, Steam allows me to do exactly that very easily, very conveniently. You can just move all of the game and installation files onto the SSD, the external SSD, and keep your internal space free. So now I've got Windows running on 40 gigabytes out of 120. I can shrink down that partition to just 80 gigabytes or even 60. In all honesty, I might just do that uh, and leave the rest of the space free for Linux, which is how it should be, in all honesty and run everything I want off of a lightning-fast connection to an external drive. It's a phenomenal solution. It is well worth the money. The SanDisk brand is extremely reputable, and I've always been satisfied with their products. So uh, take a look at the affiliate links in the description box. Uh, help support this podcast. Help support the Didactic Mind website. And, you know, so that I can keep doing this stuff. It's, uh, it's fun for me, but it is also... Uh, nice to know that it brings value to people and it's nice to see that value translated into things that people buy in all honesty so with respect to today's topic I thought it was rather germane and it's something that's been on my mind now since I attended church last week now I, I don't regularly go to church because in all honesty I find most churches to be quite cucked out and spineless and the Catholics in this country are no exception to that rule. I was in a Catholic church on Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, thereabouts. And, of course, the first thing that they told me when I walked in was, you have to put on a mask. And I was very nearly told them to sod off. Um, because I'm not interested in following any of these stupid strictures. We don't need masks in churches. We don't need masks anywhere else. Those things are not useful. The face diapers don't protect you from anything. And I'm sick and tired of being told by a bunch of idiotic nanny statists that I have to wear a mask, even though they don't work. But I took out my Chewbacca mask, which is quite a hilarious looking thing, and uh, put it on. I didn't obviously didn't cover my nose and mouth. I refused to do that too. And uh, eventually I just took it off completely during the service. And it was a full Catholic high mass, uh, delivered in the Vulgate, not in Latin. I, love to be able to view a, a proper Latin-only Mass or a proper Greek-only Mass uh, from our Orthodox brethren, but you can't do that where I am, and it seems like the Novus Ordo Mass has become standard around here at all of the Catholic churches, and I've been to two of them, uh, yeah, two of them in this country. But be that as it may, it got me thinking during the service, because this was, this was Remembrance Sunday, which means the Sunday after what Americans would call Veterans Day and what everybody else calls Remembrance Day or Memorial Day. Uh, Americans and everyone else tend to have weird misalignments of dates for the same thing. So, you know, Memorial Day in the United States is at the end of May. Memorial Day in Europe is 11th of November. And Memorial Day in the U.S. as a public holiday, Memorial Day in Europe may or may not be a holiday. In all honesty, I think uh, the Americans have it right here. Although, to complicate matters some, somewhat more, 11th of November is a market holiday in some American markets, but not in others. What do I mean by that? Sometimes, the, the way I remember it, the equity markets are closed on the 11th of November, but the bond markets are not. So because I worked in the 
capital markets arm of the US section of uh, a bank, uh, I would get, uh, I would not get that day off, but my colleagues in the equities division, you know, supporting the equities traders would. Uh, of course, it doesn't really matter now because the equities division at that bank is gone. So, anyway, I was sitting there in church and listening to the sermon from the chief high todger or whatever he's called. I, I, I know. I mean, look, if you're Catholic, don't be offended. I'm just kind of gently poking fun at, at, at what you guys believe in. Um, as far as I'm concerned, you know, Catholics believe in a whole bunch of stuff that just doesn't make sense. Uh, purgatory, the uh, immaculate conception of the Virgin Mary, like Catholics believe and argue that the Virgin Mary herself was sinless, um, which to me is completely illogical. Uh, number one, how could the Virgin Mary be completely sinless if she died? I mean, the wages of sin is death. The Virgin Mary died, right? A natural death. The only being who is completely sinless and therefore immortal is Jesus Christ. And he is in heaven right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And eventually, uh, the Father will make the enemies of Jesus Christ his footstool. And we know this, and the Bible says so. How could the Virgin Mary have been born sinless? Uh, that doesn't make any sense. It's like the Catholics zero in on very, very, very specific passages to support this argument. And they kind of twist the meaning of the word somewhat, in, in my view. Um, you know, I'm not trying to pick a fight here, but um, there's that. And then there's the fact that Jesus had actual brothers and sisters, well, brothers at least, uh, brothers plural, and not in the sense that all men are brothers kind of way, actual biological brothers born of actual human consummation of, you know, marriage and, well, reproduction between Joseph and Mary. And that is attested by St. Paul the Apostle in the epistles, okay? That's not new. We know that this happened because the existence of Jesus' brothers not born of the Holy Spirit, not conceived, I should say, of the Holy Spirit, is a fact attested to in the New Testament. So how then is Virgin Mary without sin? She wasn't a virgin all her life, and she wasn't without sin. It makes no sense. On top of which, the Virgin Mary, in the Catholic interpretation of Scripture, also kind of intercedes with the Son on behalf of men. That does not make sense. At no point in the scriptures is anyone other than the Son the intercessor for us as sinners in front of an angry and wrathful God who is angry and wrathful by right. He's furious with us. He damn well ought to be furious with us. He, he's, he's seeing you know, his creation disobeying him every single day, every single moment. So he has every right to be pissed, and he is pissed. But the Virgin Mary isn't the one interceding on behalf of men in front of God. That's Jesus. That's the one, that's the substitutionary sacrifice. That is the intercession. That is he who took our sins upon himself to die, right? So you cannot argue with a reasonable or straight face that this doctrine makes sense. It doesn't. 
The other doctrine that doesn't really make sense, which I was sitting there in church thinking about, is this concept of purgatory. Now, there is actually some basis for the concept of purgatory, but it's not in the standard Protestant Bibles. It's in the Catholic Bible because it comes from the books of Maccabees. Now, this again goes into very technical territory about what should be in the Bible versus what shouldn't be in the Bible. And there is some argument among some people that the book of Maccabees should be in the Bible, and there's, you know, predominantly Catholics will say it should be, and a lot of Protestants would say it shouldn't be. I take no strong position on either subject. I don't really care. I am not a Protestant. I am not a Catholic. I am a non-denominational Christian. Just leave it at that, okay? Whatever the truth might be, at some point, Catholics have come up, it was actually about the 15th century, so a good 1500 years after Jesus, and a good 1200 years after the New Testament was canonized, and a good 2900 years after the first books of the Old Testament were written, and a good oh, 2000 years, thereabouts, very roughly speaking, probably at 1800 years, after the books upon which this doctrine are based were written. The concept of purgatory says that there's kind of a in-between place between hell and heaven, between those who actively reject God and go to hell, and those who accept God, accept his substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf, and go to heaven. Which doctrine is correct? I don't really know. I don't really care. All that I do know, or well, not know, but all that I think is correct is that the doctrine of purgatory just doesn't make sense. Unless you can come up with a clear definition of it stated clearly by Jesus Christ, which he makes very clear is not the case. There are only two roads. There is the path to the, the narrow door through which very few will enter, and then there is the wide door through which most will enter and that will lead most to destruction. That's it. That's all you get. There's no sort of in-between door. There's no sort of place for people to go and wait out their sins and be punished and endure punishment and then finally, like God says, okay, well your sentence is up, come on, come on up to the good place. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to work like that in the Bible. I've seen nothing that indicates that this would make sense. If you have, okay, fine, you know, you've, you've seen something, I don't pretend to be an expert, but from my perspective, the doctrine of purgatory just does not make sense. It's not biblical. Um, there does seem to be something to indicate that when the tribulation begins in the book of Revelation, once the really hard times begin, the church will be whisked away into a separate realm, into a, a different sort of existence, a different plane of existence. Those that are left behind will cry out to God to avenge them and to fight on their behalf. And that is when the sorting out will happen, when those who are left behind will have to figure out whose side they're really on and will have to get themselves right with God. And that's going to be incredibly painful. I mean, you think what we're going through right now is bad? When the tribulation begins, it's going to be a thousand times worse, probably more. So what then about the church, the church is militant and the church, the church is militant and triumphant because the, the, the doctrine 
uh, of most churches separates the universe into the metaphysical realms or, well, metaphysical is probably the wrong word, but the, the, the theological realms, if you will, of the triumphant and the militant and purgatory sort of floats somewhere in between or the penitent, the, the church penitent, that's the realm of purgatory. The church militant is those of us here on earth who fight in the name of God, who fight evil, fight sin, fight temptation, the devil, stand against him, stand against all his works. That's us. What are we here to do? We are here to bring the word of God to those who will listen, and we are here to suffer and fight in God's name. And this is especially apropos right now, because as most of those people listening to me right now know, the hero Kyle Rittenhouse walked free yesterday, and thank God for that. We finally won something. We finally gained a victory on the side of the angels, and it was long overdue. I mean, everything that I've seen about this case indicates this is a case that should never have been brought before a court, ever. At no point did Kyle Rittenhouse do anything other than defend himself. When he shot and killed Joseph Rosenbaum, Jew, not, not, just, not merely a white guy, a Jew, and a convicted violent child rapist, he was running away from Mr. Rosenbaum. Rosenbaum had earlier threatened him, called him, you know, all sorts of horrible epithets. I, I believe he called him a nigger at one point and various other things. Uh, on top of which, Joseph Rosenbaum had threatened Kyle Rittenhouse with death. He threatened, he said, I'm going to kill you, something like that. He then proceeded to chase Kyle Rittenhouse, cornered him, you know, put his back up against the wall, and tried to grab his gun, which was a long-barreled AR-15 type semi-automatic rifle. Anytime somebody says assault rifle, I start seeing red. It just means, you know, people who say stuff like that just have no clue about guns. I mean, I'm pretty clueless about guns. I understand the difference between an assault rifle and a semi-automatic AR-15 style rifle. An assault rifle is capable of killing people with much heavier, heavier caliber bullets than an AR-15. An AR-15 round is, you know, not not particularly heavy caliber. It's really not. Uh, NATO 557 and um, 22 caliber. They're roughly speaking, according to my understanding, and it could be wrong. They are roughly speaking about the same um, sort of or what's it called? Diameter, caliber. Uh, they have about the same kinetic impact, which is to say not very much. An AR-15, unless you shoot someone at very close range or in the head, you know, not, not particularly useful. You can seriously hurt somebody with an AR-15. You can seriously hurt somebody with a long barrel 22 caliber rifle, yes, but you're not really going to kill them unless you're aiming at the head. Um, a hunting rifle will kill people with a 22 caliber bullet, but an AR-15, you know, it, it's it's not a serious weapon for killing people. It's just it's just, it's not. I mean, an M16 type weapon, yes, uh, a heavy duty, heavy caliber handgun is going to do a lot more damage than an AR-15 type gun, and that's just based on what little I know about 
guns, especially pistols and rifles. I know a little bit about pistols, I know almost nothing about rifles, and I'm very open about my lack of knowledge, as you can hear. Another guy came up and tried to smash Carl Rittenhouse's head in with a skateboard. Another uh, character came along and tried to launch a flying kick at his head, and he missed. Uh, I believe, supposedly, that guy who launched the flying kick was black, and that's the, that's the, the evidence that was presented in court. The uh, one of the guys, the, the the man who tried to um, the man who tried to smash Rittenhouse's head in with a skateboard, Rittenhouse also shot and killed him. Then another chap came along. I think that was Grosskreutz. Yeah, it was Grosskreutz who pointed a loaded gun straight at Kyle and threatened to kill him. And Kyle shot him from a prone position and damn near blew his arm off. I mean, severely wounded his, his right arm. Um, at no point, looking at the evidence, looking at the data, the facts of the case, can you possibly argue that this was anything other than righteous self-defense? This was a young man, really a boy at the time, he was 17 years old, less than half my age. He was defending himself in public against violent protesters who were running rampant in the streets, burning and torching and looting in a city where Jacob Blake had been shot by police with justification. Jacob Blake is still alive. He's not dead. He's very much alive. Uh, had a knife with him. He admitted to having the knife with him in subsequent testimony and in subsequent interviews. He admitted to trying to take or kidnap a baby from a woman, and police came up and shot him. Not without cause. It wasn't like, you know, some sort of unsanctioned street killing. That's not how this works. It's ridiculous to argue otherwise. Kyle Rittenhouse is an example of the church militant in action. This is not a fun place to be. Okay, this is not a nice thing to do, to be part of the church militant. To be part of the church militant means putting yourself in harm's way, in putting yourself in a place where you could potentially get hurt, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. Because the church militant fights in this world against the forces of this world that control this world. The church militant is something that you and I as believers are part of, whether we like it or not. This is us. And it's important to understand how to carry on that fight. This is a, the worst kind of place to be in, in some ways. It is also the best kind of place to be in, because we get to do God's work. God needs us on this world to fight back against the lies, against the oppression, against the blasphemies leveled against him, because he can't stand to be around sin. And we are, by definition, sinful, because we rebel constantly against his word, against his law, against the very majesty and might of God. We constantly lie to ourselves about what he wants, about who he is, and about why he gave us existence, why he gave us free will. With a record like that, it's not difficult to see why God wants nothing to do with us, until and unless we accept his offer of saving grace. In that vein of thought, we are here to fight. 
Now, I've been reminded of this by a number of interactions that I've had on my site. There's an interesting one from a commenter who calls himself Genetics is Destiny. And he stopped by and left a very long, you know, raging rant, I mean, practically borderline suicidal omega type rant about how he hates his life and doesn't wishes he never existed and if God had would just grant him a dose of barbiturates, he would take them and off himself. That's a very dark place to come from. It's a very dark comment. And I responded to him out of compassion. I mean, normally I wouldn't deal with any I wouldn't just I just wouldn't touch it. But I responded to him with some fairly tough love. And I said, dude, you are essentially saying that the God who created you hates you and hates everything that we do on this earth, that he hates sex and sexual reproduction and the righteous consummation of love between a man and a woman in holy matrimony because that's dirty to him somehow. And I said, if you believe that, you are essentially arguing that God hates matter, he hates creation. That's nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. God likes matter. He created it out of just pure thought. I mean, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis somewhat. Um, to make that argument requires rejecting everything that we know about who God is, what he does, why he does it. It doesn't make sense. It just, it's, a, it's a nonsensical idea, and we need to drop that sort of nonsense as quickly as possible. We need to fight that. That is an example of the duty of the church militant. And if you are here on this earth, if you understand what it means to be a Christian, I mean, not in the, you know, I go to church every Sunday and I say the right prayers and I go to confession and I go to mass and I give at the altar box. and That's just piffle. That's religious mummery uh, put on top of the Gospels. Yes, it's important. I'm not saying don't do it. It's useful. It's vitally important in building the community of the church. It's important to have these rituals to establish the togetherness that we feel in the church. It's important to have a place of reverence and worship of God. That's a good thing. But don't let the rituals distract you from what the message of the Gospels really is. The message of the Gospels is very clear. That message is one of constant eternal rebellion by man against God. And God's search for a way to redeem and fix his broken creation. Now you may well ask, you know, why did God create man if he knew that man would rebel? It's a good question. It's a very good question. Why did God create the angels if he knew that uh, some of the angels would rebel? I don't know if it's one-third of the angels. I don't know if it's more or less. What I, who cares? I, you know, that's, a do, that's a doctrinal issue. What we do know is that the angels rebelled against God. There was already a rebellion in heaven and a war in heaven, which resulted in Lucifer falling to well, falling out of the sky, uh, so to speak, and um, into this plane of existence to rule over it as the prince of darkness. Now, that is an interesting juxtaposition, you know, of, of the light bringer, Lucifer, the angel of light, the most beautiful 
and the most proud and the most virtuous of all of God's creations among the angels falling out of the sky and becoming the prince of darkness, the prince of evil, the one who is an immortal, prideful liar and serial killer and murderer um, who exists in control of this world. It's an interesting contrast, and I think that's the nature of falling away from God's grace. You go from this creature of, of light and majesty to a broken wreck, a ruin of a creature that cannot sustain itself properly, that tries to pretend to be God, tries to act like God, and fails miserably every time, every single time. What does it mean to be reconciled with God? It means to accept the brokenness that is within us and to accept that we can't fix it ourselves, that we have to rely on something much bigger than ourselves to fix it. That is the message that we, as part of the church militant, need to be bringing to the fore. Now, if you know what you're doing here, if you know your purpose on this earth, then you're a very, very lucky man, because most of us don't know our purpose. I don't. I have no idea what I'm doing here, where, you know, exactly here where I am right now. I have no idea why God put me here. He very obviously put me here for a reason. I have no clue as to what. It wasn't to make me happy. It wasn't to make me comfortable and satisfied. It was to execute something. It was to do something on his behalf. I still have no idea what that is. Maybe I'm doing it. I hope I am. I'm probably not. All I can say is that being part of that church requires a certain sacrifice of comfort, of stability, of peace of mind, because you know that you're not doing this just for you anymore. You're doing something bigger than yourself. And that's what being part of a church is really all about. If there is indeed a reason why I am here, and if there is a reason why you're listening to me talking just at you, because this is not a conversation, obviously, that reason is because men like you and me need hope. The church militant exists on earth in a world of brokenness and sin. That world will drive any sane man to his knees begging for forgiveness if he cannot find a way to block out the horror around him. And there is much horror to be seen. Every day we see our countries being overrun. We see our laws being disobeyed by illegal invaders, at least if you live in the West. We see laws that have absolutely no basis in reality, in common sense, in anything like regard for the people that they're supposed to be helping being rammed down our throats every single day. We see the most outrageous lies being propagated by self-interested race hustlers, gender hustlers, 
intersectional whatever you call it who seek to divide us and deny our basic humanity every single day we are forced to endure filth and degradation in our textbooks on our tv screens in the material that we read in the videos that we watch in the music that we listen to the advertising that we see around us it is disgusting and it is appalling and it is ridiculous it's enough to drive a sane man out of his mind it's enough to drive a penitent man to his knees that's what we're fighting against that sense of despair that is our purpose here on this earth and it's difficult to maintain that fight sometimes actually quite a lot of the time it's very very hard work so how do we you and i as part of this church militant which as i've already established if you are a christian on this earth and you accept the role of jesus christ as lord and savior you are part of that church whether you like it or not you signed up for this war whether you like it or not you're part of it you chose a side the moment that you knelt down and said lord i believe in you know i believe that you sent your only begotten son jesus christ down to earth to take human form that he died on the cross and that you raised him again from the dead on the after the third day and now he sits at your right hand if you accept this which is the like the 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 apostles creed or the niceno constantinian creed whichever version you accept if you accept that which is indeed the creed of the christian you chose a side in a war whether you like it or not you're signed up to fight son you've taken up arms so you can't just bitch and cry about how hard it is to fight not going to that's not going to fly you have to pick a side and you have to pick up your weapon and get in the fight but how do you maintain your ability to fight especially given that this is not a war of flesh and blood it's a war of will and spirit in order to continue fighting you have to understand what you're fighting for and why you're fighting that war you have to understand the tactics of the enemy and those tactics are to demoralize you but more than that you have to understand the strategy of the enemy remember how i said in my last podcast the you know it's called the mind of war episode 87 right and i was talking about um how strategy and design are absolutely inseparable you can't have one without the other on top of which you need to understand that there are three layers to war uh there are multiple ways of phrasing it they really all come back to the same thing the john boyd approach to this or you know the colonel john boyd william s lind martin van krevel the 4gw uh school of thought whichever one you want to pick right which whichever one of these great men you wish to follow they all say basically the same thing the physical level of war is beaten by the mental level of war is beaten by the moral level of war the highest level of war is the moral level you can be physically incredibly strong but morally incredibly weak and the moment you accept that you understand how the united states keeps losing every single war it fights america is physically the most feared combatant anywhere in the world there is nobody who can fight a war like the americans can 
There's nobody who can land steel on target the way Americans can. But morally, they have no backbone. And I mean that. I mean, I know that's going to offend a lot of Americans, but it's true. You have absolutely no spine for this fight. Because you keep losing on the moral level. And because you keep losing on the moral level where, you know, you invade a country and you destroy its infrastructure and you turn its people against you and you keep doing stupid shit over and over and over again and you lose the moral support not just of your people back home but of the people you're fighting your soldiers lose their mental edge they they start questioning why they're fighting they don't understand what they're doing they don't realize why what the point is of this conflict and they you know with good reason because you've thrown them into a conflict that has no over overarching moral purpose or if there is an overarching moral purpose, it's a really bad one that your people back home don't agree with. When you put soldiers into that kind of fight, are you surprised that they keep losing? We saw this in Vietnam. We saw it in Iraq in Gulf War II. Not Gulf War I, Gulf War II. We saw it in Afghanistan where the United States has just been forced to retreat in utter humiliation and disgrace. We're seeing it in the East China Sea, and we're going to be seeing an awful lot more of it over the coming years, where America is constantly forced onto the back foot because it is its conflicts are utterly indefensible. In that same way, you as a member of the church militant need to understand the moral level of the war you're fighting. Another way of phrasing it is also uh, tactics is superseded by operations or logistics is superseded by strategy. If you don't have, uh, another way to put it that I've seen, which I think is very good, is uh, supposedly Sun Tzu. Uh, Sun Tzu said, uh, strategy without tactics is the hard road to victory. Strategy, uh, tactics without strategy is but uh, a longer defeat or a, a, a more difficult path to defeat, something like that. Um, well, let me go look it up, because I, I butchered that quite badly. Sun Tzu, uh, tactics without strategy, strategy, and what he actually said was, yeah, here we go. Strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory. Tactics without strategy is the noise before defeat. Yeah, I'd say that's about right. The same is true for the church militant. If you are part of that church, if you are part of the church, of any church, if you actually accept the war that you find, signed up to fight, you need to understand what the enemy's strategy is. Because there is one. There actually is one. You need to understand as well what the strategy of your side is. Because if you don't understand that, you're not going to have the mental and moral capacity for the fight. So what is the enemy's strategy? We already know. If you accept the gospel, you know what Jesus did and the significance and the enormity of what he accomplished. Jesus died on the cross and descended into hell. And on the third day, he broke down the gates of hell and rose again from the dead. That's not supposed to happen. That's never happened before. Where a man, well, up until Jesus arrived and raised Lazarus, that hadn't basically hadn't happened before. It was simply not the case that a man could die and be raised again from the dead. 
could not be done. Jesus did it, repeatedly. It's not just him who came back from the dead. Lazarus and the girl who, who died and was in the tomb, he raised them from the dead too. Now, you can read those passages in the Old Testament and go, oh, okay, that's really interesting. Yeah, that sounds, oh, wow, cool, nice story. Try to put yourselves in the positions of the people at the time. I mean, remember that the Bible is a historical document as well as a collection of amazing stories. It is an actual document of living history. So imagine you're in first century Judea and you know, you're a family whose daughter has just died. It's a horrible thought. Your daughter is in her tomb and you're weeping and crying and, 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 and just in heartbroken with grief. And this, you know, interloper named Jesus from a place called Nazareth comes along and basically calls your daughter and says, hey, come on out of the tomb. You're not, you know, wake up. Stop, uh, stop wasting time. You, you got stuff to do. I mean, for a parent, that's outrageous. It's absolutely infuriating. Like, are you making fun of us? And then your daughter actually wakes up and comes out. And this isn't a zombie movie. She's, you know, She's not like going brains or anything like that. She's, she's actually alive. She's healthy. She's radiant. She doesn't look like she just suffered from a terrible illness. And she walks out of that tomb. I mean, or, you know, or basically wakes up and, and is hungry and wants to eat. And you're like, what just happened? You have no idea. Imagine that, the, the, the shock, the horror, and the relief, the, the joy, the exultation that comes with it. Now multiply that by the hundreds who saw the resurrected Jesus, and you have some idea of the impact that that reappearance had on people back then. Now understand where that fits in to the overall scheme of things. Up until Jesus did this, the devil had no limits to his time on earth. When Jesus was wandering out in the desert for 40 days, uh, hungry and thirsty, the devil came across him and tried to tempt him three times. And he was actually fishing for Jesus' identity. There's a very, very good video from Dr. Mike Heiser where he talks about this. Um, it's a, a collaboration between him and uh, Dr. Frank Turek. And Mike Heiser, God bless him. Um, you know, please pray for him. He has, uh, he has, I think, pancreatic cancer, which is a horrific, horrific fate. Uh, I, you know, I hope and pray that chemotherapy works because we need men like that on our side, unpacking the Bible and explaining it and examining it. Uh, if we lose him, we've lost a tremendous voice in uh, biblical apologetics and in scholarship of the Bible. But he talks about what Satan was trying to do when tempting Jesus. And he talks about the manner in which Satan was fishing for information to try to figure out, who is this guy? There's something special about him, but I don't know what it is. Satan tried to get Jesus to reveal himself as the Son of God by saying, you know, basically throw yourself off of this high place and, uh, uh, you know, the angels will catch you so you don't lose your foot. And if he, if if Satan had known that, he would have known, holy crap, that's that's the song of God. I got to destroy him. 
But Jesus was too smart for him and turned the scriptures back on Satan himself and said, no, I'm, you, you shall not put your Lord, the, the Lord your God to the test. So he kind of gave Satan what he wanted and yet put him in his place as well. And Satan came, came away from him going like, I, I still don't get who this guy is, but he's dangerous, so I have to crush him, which is what he did, or he tried to anyway. Up until that point, Satan really had essentially no limits to his power on earth. He, has, he had full dominion over earth, over all men, for until the end of time, because God cannot bring himself to be in contact with sin. So God has removed himself from this plane of existence and no longer operates within this realm because God cannot lie, God is the truth, God is love, but he cannot be around sinfulness and sinful behavior. He can't do it. He has to go through intermediaries, intercessors. He has to go through prophets and angels and visions and signs in order to communicate with us here on earth. But now, here is the emissary of God, who is part of God himself on earth, providing a very, very clear answer to the impossible problem of evil, the solution, the only solution. That is what Jesus represents. And his sacrifice upon the cross and his resurrection afterwards is the limiting factor on Satan's power. Once Jesus broke down the gates of hell, and prove that it could be done, Satan knew that his time was limited because now there is a definitive ending to his time on earth, to his dominion over all mankind. Jesus said so many times that the day of reckoning will come, that the day of judgment will see Satan's power broken and God's power triumphant over earth, and that a good chunk people will be saved. Not everybody. Most people won't be. Most Christians won't be saved at that time. But a good chunk of people will be saved. That, in and of itself, means that Satan has a time limit on what he can do. So his strategy is very clear. It is to spread despair and misery and capture as many souls away from God as possible. To maximize collateral damage to demoralize you, to dishearten you, to drive you to despair, to drive you to nihilism, to reject God and all of his works, and to accept hopelessness and sin. That is his purpose. That is what we are here to fight. That is what we exist to combat as part of the church. This is the strategy of the enemy. The strategy of our side, therefore, must be very clear. We need to spread hope. We need to spread light. We need to show other people that there is a better way. We must not give in to despair. And believe me, I know how hard that is. I have been driven to my knees so many times over the last three years. In utter despair, turning to God and begging Him to reveal His will to me. And I've got nothing in return, or so I thought. It turns out over time, you know, the inner workings of what was going on behind the scenes became more clear. But boy, did it take a lot out of me to figure it out. This is what we have to fight. 
It's not easy. It's not simple. It's a tremendous drag upon our souls. And it's getting harder every day. Brothers, I know it. I mean, I, I watch the news, or I well, actually don't watch it. I try to avoid watching news, frankly. Um, but I see what's going on. Now, I, I watch uh, or I read uh, various uh, tabloid sources. I, I, can't, I can't bear to read the American press anymore because it's just, I, you know, my well-known opinion of prostitutes being what it is, I mean, I can't stand American media. It's just, it's it's gutter-level garbage at this point. Um, it, most of it is just so bad. Uh, the international media are quite a bit better, uh, particularly if you read what's coming out of Russia via RT, and to some extent, believe it or not, the Brits. I mean, the Brits are almost as paused out as the Americans at this point, but they do actually have some good newspapers. And uh, not the Telegraph, not the Guardian, forget that. Uh, those, those people are hopelessly cucked out. Uh, but the Daily Mail often has some, some good stuff in there. Uh, the, the Sun also has some good reporting, but um, you, know, you have to take what you read with a massive grain of salt. It's easy to give in to despair when reading the media. It's easy to think that there's no point to this fight, that we have nothing going for us, that everything is indeed failing, but it's not. Things are not failing. We've actually won. Long run, we've won the war. The war is over. I mean, we know that, we know how it ends. We know how this fight ends. What we haven't figured out is how to get to that, that end point. Because we know how the story ends, but we don't know what's going to happen between now and that point. And we don't even know when that point's going to happen. It's a very strange situation we find ourselves in. So for us, the directive is clear. We have to fight on. How do you do it? How do you endure? How do you continue to battle in the face of overwhelming odds, in the face of a desperate last-ditch attempt by an enraged enemy with nothing to lose because he knows how this fight ends? How do you deal with somebody like that who is willing to do whatever it takes to destroy you and to destroy everything you love and care about in order to maximize collateral damage. How are you going to do that? It's not easy. The first key principle to remember is endurance. Just endure. I've spent a lot of time around mixed martial artists. I've spent uh, quite a bit of time around amateur and professional MMA fighters. And some of the best advice that I've ever gotten from one of them has stuck with me for years. And I gave this advice to somebody who was hurting and in pain just today, as a matter of fact. And that person came to me and said, I, you know, I, I don't feel understood. I feel trapped. I feel alone. And I'm not able to do anything about it. I have this tremendous anxiety. I can't get rid of it somehow. I'm terrified and petrified of, of what will happen to me if I don't achieve this thing. And I feel despair and I, I feel like giving up. And I, and I told this person, look, I told this person this exact advice that I got. This guy, this, this MMA fighter that I, he was actually one of my teachers, uh, told me, you know, I only learned the power of conditioning when I started doing conditioning training. And I realized that by conditioning myself, I could actually outlast the other guy. Just by, you know, 
being able to hang in the, in, in the cage longer than he could, just by being able to take more punishment than he could, I found myself being able to win. That's the key. That's how you endure. You literally just take it. You find a way to develop yourself such that you can take the beatings and you can take the misery and the punishment. Because, you know, the, uh, it's called the rope-a-dope strategy in boxing, and it's not a very good one, by the way, um, as a general rule. Uh, it's not a good way to fight, where you basically find yourself up against the rope and uh, whoever it is, is is just pounding on you, and he wears himself out by doing it. It, does, it, it usually doesn't succeed, by the way. But there are refinements of this strategy available. It comes back to what I was talking about with respect to strategy. It's really a tactic. But the overarching strategy is to let your opponent wear himself out on you. One of these tactics is rope-a-dope type play. Another is just to make your enemy miss a lot. If you uh, look at videos of the greatest Muay Thai fighter ever to live, um, his name is Samark Payakarun, and he is unanimous, almost unanimously considered by his fellow Thais as the best Muay Thai fighter of all time. And that's saying something because he doesn't actually have the fight record of a lot of his uh, competitors for that title. He doesn't have you know, 280 something fights or 450 fights or however many insane numbers some of these Muay Thai guys rack up. You know, Buakao has like 270 some fights to his name. And Buakao is the man that most of us in the West would consider to be the legend of Muay Thai. Buakao himself says, no, I'm not the best, Samart was the best. If you watch videos of Samart Payakarun fighting, and there's a post on, on my site called uh, lessons, Life Lessons from the Jade-Faced Tiger, because that was his nickname, Samart's nickname. You'll watch and see that video, and you'll see how he danced and how he moved about the ring. And he would just like, there's this one section where he just like, he literally enter, enters the matrix against this one opponent. And the guy's throwing like 15 punches at him, and Samart dodges every single one. And the guy, his opponent just stands back and goes, what the hell was that? Samark waves at him with, you know, raises one glove and waves at him. And it just, it's like a red flag in front of a bull. This guy charges in, tries to knock him out with one punch, and Samark just hits him with a massive uppercut. And that's it. That's the whole fight. It's done. That is how you fight back. Take everything that comes your way, dodge as much of it as you can, and endure. That's the first lesson. The second lesson is to keep the faith, to understand that we're going to lose most of the time. That's just the truth. We are. Up until the Rittenhouse trial, we were losing most of these fights. Jan 6th, we lost. I mean, the, the, the QAnon shaman, that, that guy, you know, Chewbacca Viking guy, he just got sentenced to 41 months in prison for trespassing, which is ridiculous. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely absurd. It's a, it's a blatant travesty. It's a miscarriage of justice of an epic kind. Before that, you know, or shortly after that, actually, uh, Donald Trump had to exit the White House. He did not lose that election. It was a fake election at every point. There's no way that you could argue that he lost that election with a straight face. There were so many voting irregularities, it's not even funny. That was a fake election of the worst kind. 75 million Americans had their votes stolen from them by that election. 
And Donald Trump lost the presidency not on a fair fight, but on a rigged vote. Before that, it was the double impeachment of Donald Trump, which, I mean, it proceeded on the most, or one before that and the one after that. The double impeachment of Donald Trump was ridiculous. The riots that happened all summer long in 20, uh, 2020, what was going on there? A lot of it was just purely sponsored by outside interests. It's hard to watch that and come to the conclusion that we're dealing with honest people. We're dealing with malicious actors of the worst kind. We're dealing with ravening psychopaths controlled by the prince of this world. Ultimately, that's what it all comes down to. So we're going to take a lot of losses, but sometimes we win one, like we did yesterday. Keep your faith in those victories, because it's very important that you do so. And make sure that you don't give in to despair, because if you do, there's no way back. It's very easy to give up and check out. And if you do that, that's exactly what the prince of this world wants, because it's one less enemy he has to deal with. You are the enemy, as far as he's concerned. You've painted a target on your back. The moment that you knelt down and accepted Jesus as your savior, you became his enemy, uh, Satan's enemy, to be clear. He's after you. He will be delighted if he finds a way to snare you, as he has done with so many Christians by now. Be on your guard, be vigilant, be careful, and be aware of what the enemy wants. Because it's not going to go well for you if you give up what you've been given through grace and intercession and accept something else, something much darker and more dangerous and more temporary. As so many Christians have done, as so many members of the Word Faith Movement, or the Charismatic Movement, you know, Kenneth Copeland's and uh, Associated faith healers of this world have done. If you become like them, there's no way back for you. And if you watch Kenneth Copeland, you know, ministering, quote unquote, you'd be convinced the guy is demon-possessed. I mean, he looks like it. He's, he's a nutcase. My last word to my brothers in the church is this. You were created for a purpose. You have free will for a reason. Use it. You have been given a great gift. You have been given an opportunity to fight on behalf of something much bigger than yourself. Don't sit there and wallow in despair, as easy as it is to do. Believe me, I know. I've done it. Instead, pick up your sword and shield, or your rifle, if that's what you feel, you know, we are in the 21st century, after all. And get to work. Stand up and fight. Not necessarily physically. Don't go around shooting people, because that's ridiculous. That's No one condones that. But defend yourself intelligently and carefully. Do not be reckless. Beg forgiveness on a daily basis for your sins. And show up for the fight. Become a husband and a father. Become a mentor to those who need it. Help up those who are in despair. Stand for the truth and stand with the Father. And that's all you're going to need to do. And it's hard to do, but it's worth doing.
Right, I am out of time. I wish you well, my friends. Thank you very much for listening. As always, make sure you like, comment, share, and subscribe. This has been Didactic Mind, episode 88, The Church Militant, and I am Didact, signing off.